Jodcast. Less dangerous than wearing a red shirt on an away mission. With Adam Averson, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast. February 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Jen Gupta and joining me in the studio today is Adam Averson. Hi Adam. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm alright, thanks. So, in the show this month, we put your questions to Tim O'Brien and we round up your listener feedback. But before that, we've got a couple of interviews that Stuart recorded when he went to Astrofest earlier this month in London. Okay, I'm at Astrofest and I'm talking to Dr. Jim Wilde. Hi, Jim. Hi there, how you doing? Okay, thanks and welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much. Now, you've been talking this morning at Astrofest about space weather and the sun. Can you just tell us a little bit about your involvement as a space scientist in space weather? Yeah, sure. Well, space weather is really interesting. It's what we, we generally think of the changes in the, in the space environment uh, that surrounds all the planets in the solar system of space weather. So obviously the sun's driving this all space weather in our solar system. And then just like weather on Earth, it changes from time to time in sort of hours, minutes, seconds, years, months. So we have a whole range of timescales and, and spatial scales on which we have to try and understand these variations in the environment around our planet. But then the really crucial thing is then to figure out how those couple into our planet. So this, we often hear space weather um, uh, experts and space scientists talking about geo-effectiveness. So it's not only understanding how big the coronal mass ejections might be or how fast they're moving, but understand just how well they couple into our own planetary system and then feed energy into the inner parts of the Earth's magnetic field system. Right, so how, how how exactly would a coronal mass ejection you said there, which is an ejection of huge amounts of plasma from the sun heading to out into space, and sometimes they head towards the Earth? How does that actually couple to the Earth then? Well. If you just take a vanilla-flavoured coronal mass ejection, so, so the, the sort of your average thing, it's about a billion tonnes of plasma moving at about 500 kilometres a second. So it takes a, about four days to get to the Earth. So sometimes we can see them some coming, sometimes we can't. But when that arrives, the first thing it does is it will compress the, the day side of the Earth's magnetic field. And in fact, the whole cavity that the Earth sits in in the solar wind, the magnetosphere, gets compressed by just this impact of a huge amount of material. But the crucial thing then is, inside that coronal mass ejection, there'll be some remnants of the magnetic field from the sun. And the exact orientation of that can make a big difference. So we all know that with, with regular weather, if you have uh, snow falling onto a cold, dry road, uh, it, it, the effect will be very different than if it lands on a, a warm, wet road. So it doesn't matter, the same amount of snow will give you a very different effect. With a coronal mass ejection, the amount of field wrapped up, and the orientation of the field wrapped up in that ball of plasma... So this has come from the sun come with from the plasma? from the sun with, with the plasma. So the two things are what we call frozen together. That will make a really big difference, because if that magnetic field is, di- is, is oppositely directed to the Earth's own, then we all know that from simple bar magnets, the oppositely oriented magnetic fields will, will interact really strongly. And so that will be very effective at peeling away the front side of the Earth's magnetic field and slamming into the inner parts of the magnetosphere. If, on the other, side, on the other hand, it's, it's parallel to the Earth's magnetic field, so we have a northward magnetic field inside the, the CME, then actually the, the coupling won't be very good across the boundary and we'll get some force field effect. So, yeah, we're going to get walloped, but we'll still get that protection effect of the Earth's magnetic field. So it's not just seeing them come in, we've also got to figure out what's in them, how they travel, and how those properties change as they're on their way towards us. OK, so if, if there's a, a mass ejection from the sun and it hits the Earth, what sorts of effects do we experience on the Earth? What problems can that cause? Well, the, the, the main effect of the, of the coronal mass ejection will be that it will probably trigger what we call a geomagnetic storm. So we're compressing the Earth's magnetic field inside its, inside its bubble in the, in the solar wind, and that compression means it gets stronger. So all the magnetic field lines get close together. So we see a strengthening of the Earth's magnetic field. And then also, 
we have to keep remembering that most of what goes on inside the uh, in the magnetosphere in terms of accelerating particles in and creating things like the aurora most of those are processes inside the magnetosphere the magnetosphere is a bit like an enormous particle accelerator and when it gets walloped by a coronal mass ejection and gets compressed and strengthened really the knob gets turned up to 11 there the, the, the acceleration processes get much more efficient and much stronger and also there's a huge population of plasma that's being funneled into the system so actually we, we start to see that the aurora will brighten we'll see very strong aurora sometimes I mean it, during the large event that Carrington observed in, in 1859 you can see the aurora down far south as, as Cuba and, and the southern parts of the southern states of the USA so the aurora will expand hugely as the, as the energy coming into the polar regions gets, uh, gets much greater but also we'll start to see in our modern technological society, technology-driven society, things like radio communications can become a bit more problematic. Um, airline flights crossing the polar routes will also have to start taking account increased radiation dosage and the, the poor communications environment up there. We can induce very large currents in power grids, which can be a problem for some of the transformers to cope with, so we have to take that into account. And of course all our space infrastructure will also start to feel the effect of a slightly expanded and increased density atmosphere as the Earth's atmosphere warms up slightly from the increased energy input. Problems like low Earth orbit satellites are feeling higher drag. Things like the ISS as well. Things like the ISS will also uh, become a, a little bit more sensitive to these events because basically the increased radiation doses in the inner magnetosphere go up slightly. So you'll find that the astronauts will probably be encouraged to go into those parts of the station where they have higher degrees of shielding from the, from the, from the radiation at the time. And you're involved in a few experiments that look from the ground and there's experiments in space that monitor the sun. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the real trick with things like magnetosphere and, and space weather is it's really difficult to, to fill in the gaps between the measurements. And a great analogy is imagine trying to make measurements of the, of, the re, of the weather on Earth, the regular climate and the weather, with only half a dozen thermometers scattered all over the surface of the Earth. It'd be very difficult. And so we have a few instruments in orbit, so probably a couple of dozen satellites in orbit around the Earth. We have a handful of satellites that are constantly looking at the sun. And so we're able to augment those with instruments on the ground. So looking up into the magnetosphere along the magnetic field lines that, that, are, that, that come down to the surface of the Earth. And so the nature of that means that most of those kind of instruments are located in the auroral regions around the North and the South Magnetic Pole. So we have, for example, very large powerful radar systems to, to probe the materials it rains in. Obviously lots of optical equipment to take pictures of the aurora because the aurora is just a, it's just a symptom of what's going on out in space. So if we look at, for example, motions in the aurora, boundaries, brightenings, intensity, we can map that out along the magnetic field line and see where the source regions are coming from in space. So really looking on the ground, we're looking at the symptoms in the same way that a doctor studies a patient in order to understand more about the disease and how it moves. Do you get much chance to go up to near the North Pole to do some observations by eye as well? Yeah, well, the, the uh, science being what it is now, um, a lot of our equipments are run remote routinely, so we have a host of uh, cameras. So out of, certainly out of Lancaster, I run uh, three images in Iceland and the Faroe Islands, but that couples up with the international effort. So at the moment, the US guys have a, a large array of, it, of cameras spanning uh, Alaska and Canada. Uh, our Scandinavian colleagues have been doing this for a very long time, obviously, because they're in just the right place. So, yeah, so we get it to go up to quite often to uh, northern uh, Norway, up to Spitsbergen in Svalbard, also to Iceland. In Australia, and they're really fantastic environments and an amazing place, amazing opportunities to go and work there. It's just beautiful. I'm very jealous. I've only seen Aurora from Cheshire, and that's, that's as good as I've got. Yeah, you, 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 I always say it's something you really have to do before you die. Get to the Aurora. And people always come and say, when they hear, ever hear me talking about the Aurora, where's a good place to go and see it? So, uh, yeah, we, we generally say try and get somewhere like not Iceland or northern Scandinavia. Often around the equinoxes is good because you want to balance that good weather against good viewing conditions. Summer's no good, obviously, because it's permanent daylight. Yep. And, so, and then you just, it's a bit like whale watching. You pay your money and you take your chance and you wait and, and hope. 
Now, you mentioned there there are a few spacecraft um, observing the sun. One of them is just about to go up as we record this, the Solar Dynamics Observatory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Solar Dynamics Observatory is going to be really interesting because it's, it's mainly aimed at helping us understand those processes that go on the sun that give us those dynamics. So, so the things that cause flares and cause coronal mass ejections. So, uh, and also the, the, the underlying processes that give the sun its 11-year solar cycle. We know that every 11 years the sun goes from a very obvious minimum activity through a maximum back to minimum again. Uh, and you can characterise that in various ways, a good one being the number of sunspots you see. But we don't really know why that is. We've been observing it for hundreds of years, and we've got various ideas, various theories. Obviously, modelling and theory plays a big part in this, but we still don't really have a, a clear understanding of why it has the most basic dynamics. So SDO should really help us to understand those by making really in-detail measurements of the, the actual dynamics on the sun, not just the static picture. Right. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. We wish you the best of luck with IceCat and the other experiments you're involved with. Cheers. OK, I'm with Dr Marek Kakula from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. Hi, Marek. Hi. You've been on the Jodcast before, in, in video form, in fact. That's right. It was a highlight of my career, I think, so it's very exciting to be back. Well, we're glad that you say that. Now, you're from the Royal Observatory Greenwich, and Greenwich is just launching a new season called the Solar Season. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Well, that's right. We wanted to do something that was a little bit different that would follow on from uh, the International Year of Astronomy last year, and we thought the sun would be a good subject, partly because we're just coming out of one of the deepest and longest solar minimums for 100 years or so, and also because the Solar Dynamics Observatory is just about to be launched. So the sun is really kind of flavour of the month or flavour of the year. And um, finally, Greenwich has got a long history of observing the sun, and some of the pioneering studies um, that the modern missions are based on were done in Greenwich. So it seemed like the obvious choice for us. Right, and so what's happening as part of the solar season? Well, we've got all sorts of things going on. We have a new uh, planetarium show called Secrets of the Sun, which is launching um, today, actually, as we're recording. Um, We have an exhibition called Solar Story, um, which charts the history of mankind's attempts to understand the sun and how it works from very early ideas right down to the modern missions, which are up in space and sending back images all the time. Um, And again, touching on the history of Greenwich uh, as a a site, a central site for, for understanding how the sun works. So so it's a real mixture. We also have a series of talks from various experts about the history and the modern science of solar physics, um, and also quite a fun talk from our own head of science education, Rob Edwards, which is all about some weird and wonderful science and science fiction ideas of life on the sun, um, which, which should be good fun. That's on April the 1st, appropriately enough. <laughs> Very good. And Greenwich is also launching something called Solar Stormwatch. Can you tell us about that as well? That's right. Um, Greenwich, of course, hasn't been an active um, observatory or an active research site for over 50 years. But we wanted to kind of move back into the field of, of research a little bit. So that isn't helped by being in central London. Well, that's right. The, the light pollution um, is, is not um, conducive to doing you know, really deep studies of the sky. So uh, the, the observatory facilities were moved to Hurstmansu and then obviously to the UK overseas observatories many many years ago we still do observing and it's amazing what you can see from Greenwich but still not good for professional astronomy but we decided we wanted to try and dip our toes back into the world of research and we were looking with with envy at um, what the Galaxy Zoo people were doing Um, so we got in touch with them and uh, it turned out that they just got access to a massive new data set from NASA's stereo mission and these are the twin spacecraft which are studying the sun from two different angles allowing them to put together 3D images 
And just as with Galaxy Zoo, they have huge amounts of data that they uh, don't have the resources, the time, the manpower to analyse themselves. And they were looking for a citizen science way of giving the public access to help them study the, the images. So we jumped on this. Um, it really fitted with what we wanted to do and it fitted with Greenwich's history of um, being a centre for solar research. So that's going to launch later this month um, as part of the Zooniverse um, family of projects. And we're really, really excited about it. Uh, the website looks fantastic. So I really hope people will, will sign on and start helping NASA scientists to understand the sun. So what sort of tasks will people do? Because for galaxies, you were deciding whether they were elliptical or spiral and how many spiral arms? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different from Galaxy Zoo. The, the thing that we're interested in doing is looking at these things called coronal mass ejections, which are huge bursts um, off the surface of the sun of billions of tonnes of particles, charged particles, that go gushing out into the solar system. And the issue is when they strike the Earth, they can damage satellites, they can cause health problems for, sat- for astronauts in the International Space Station, and they can also affect power grids here on the Earth. Uh, so scientists, governments, businesses, are all very interested in predicting these things to try and mitigate the the damage that they cause Um, and one of the problems we've had before is that you can't really tell what direction they're coming in with just one point of view so with stereo you can actually get real information about the size the shape of the coronal mass ejection and its trajectory and so the idea is people will look at these images and try to trace the shape and the direction that they're going in uh, to help scientists to understand how they happen and also to predict better when they're going to happen and whether they're coming towards us. So it's something that has a real practical application. Another excellent way for people to get involved in science as well. Yes, uh, again we were very, very impressed with the um, the way the, the users of Galaxy Zoo, the Zooites, got so involved and really genned up on the subject and were coming up with really interesting ideas of their own which then generated new science from the, the scientists. So we're hoping that people will, will get involved on that level with Solar Stormwatch as well. So when's the exhibition open? Well, Solar Story, the exhibition opened in January. Uh, It's open every day at the Royal Observatory, which is free. Um, So it's 10 till 5 p.m., seven days a week. And that exhibition will run through until early May. Right, so if people are in central London, they've got no excuse for not going. Absolutely no excuse. Come see the exhibition, see a planetarium show and have a look around our galleries and you may even get to um, meet one of the astronomers and have a chat with them as well. Right, well, thank you very much, Marek, for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for that, Stuart. And talking of the sun, something recently on the BBC website, there was an article about how an increase in solar activity might mean that sat-navs will stop working because the sun works on an 11-year cycle and it's now starting to be more active and sat-nav signals are really weak. So the, if there are solar flares, the, the energy emitted by these solar flares might interrupt the signal from the GPS satellites, which would mean that you wouldn't know where you were for a while, which I think is kind of interesting to find out how people will manage again with maps. Well, people are always getting lost with sat-navs, so... True. Returning to paper might be uh, beneficial. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, I think you've got something to tell us about a possible asteroid collision. Yeah, so uh, earlier on in the month, the Hubble Space Telescope released an image of a comet-like object, P2010A2. That's a really interesting name that it's got. (laughs) Yeah. I'm guessing the 2010 is year-related, but... Uh, it's currently amongst the uh, the main belt asteroids, and it shows what appears to be sort of an, an X-shape at its leading edge. Uh, another feature of it is there's a really bright point-like object sort of to the upper left of the X, which may or may not be associated with the actual objects. So there's a couple of theories about what it could be. First of all, comets in the 
asteroid belt are not that uncommon, so it could be one of those that's uh, collided with an asteroid, or it could be two asteroids that have collided together, creating something that looks like a comet, because the object has the typical feature of a, a massive debris tail. But as of yet, there's been no gas emission that would be expected with a comet. And uh, finally, it could be something as unusual as a, a rapidly rotating asteroid that's slowly built up its angular momentum whilst travelling around the uh, asteroid belt. But it's still speculative, but it's a cool image. Yeah, it does look really <laughs> cool. And something else that we don't really have anywhere else to put it in the show is that we are now on Astronomy FM. So hello to anyone who's discovered us through Astronomy FM. Maybe we should say a little bit about what it is. So Astronomy FM is an internet radio station. It broadcasts various astronomy podcasts, such as 365 Days of Astronomy, but they also have their own in-house shows. And they run their programs in um, three-hour blocks and then repeat them throughout the day so that everyone around the world can have a convenient time to listen to it. And speaking of 365 Days of Astronomy, two Jogcast listeners have recently had episodes. Rapid Eye had an episode on the 2nd of February and Rob Bowman had one on the 8th. So go and check those out. And uh, with more audio on the internet, Megan's Doctor Who story has been given some audio treatment by Darker Projects. You can get the link from either Megan's blog or darkerprojects.com and follow the link to Doctor Who. Yeah, this is an episode with our very own Dave as the Doctor, so go and check that out. So, from a fictional Doctor who knows everything about time and space, to a real one who knows a lot about astronomy, here's Tim O'Brien to answer your questions. This month we got uh, an interesting question from Joe Stainton who's written in to us to say I've seen, as I'm sure most people have, pictures of our galaxy. I've also seen pictures of the spiral arm where the Earth sits, usually with a circle superimposed and some text which states confidently, you are here. My question is, how can this be? Who or what has been far enough out to take these photographs? If these pictures are an approximation, or a best guess to the structure of our galaxy, then again, how do we know what our galaxy should look like without being thousands of light years away from it to see? That's an excellent question, Joe. Uh, I'm sure you're right. I've seen, we all see lots of uh, what are actually artist's impressions, largely, of our Milky Way galaxy showing the location of the sun. We clearly can't um, fly away in a spacecraft far enough to sort of look back and take a photograph and say where we are. So obviously they're based on some sort of uh, observational model of the structure of the galaxy. Now, uh, I think if we're going to answer this question, probably one of the things we should say is the Milky Way, just to cut to the chase, the Milky Way is actually a disc-like shape. We're very sure that it's a disc-like shape. Uh, so a flattened disc, imagine two dinner plates put face to face, and that's where most of the stars are most of the dust in the Milky Way and it's where the sun sits and we're actually we think about two-thirds of the way out from the center of that disk lying in the plane of the disk. Um, surrounding that disk there is a larger sort of perhaps roughly spherical halo which contains um, old globular clusters of stars. It also contains um, throughout that whole region there's, there's lots of dark matter we believe um, but generally most of the stars and the dust are in this flattened disk. Now to get an idea of what our galaxy might be like, of course, one thing we can do is look at other galaxies. And we can look out into space and we can look at all the different types of galaxies. Look at a project like Galaxy Zoo, for example, at the moment, which is looking at lots of different types of galaxies. And we can sort of compare what we see there to some of the observations we can make of our own galaxy and sort of try to work out what type of galaxy we sit in. And perhaps one of the things to note, first of all, is that if we look at sort of um, all-sky pictures, 
where we go and we say take photographs of of the whole sky around us surrounding the earth the full the full sphere around us um then we see that the milky way is this sort of brightish band of stars that encircles the encircles the sphere and sort of threaded through that band of stars are dust lens which which absorb the visible light from those stars so there's a there's some excellent pictures like for example um the two mass survey of the sky that's the two micron all sky survey two mic- microns is the wavelength that's uh, two millionths of a meter two microns uh, in the in the near infrared uh, and there's a lovely photograph of the sky there that shows this sort of the band of stars the near infrared light from the stars but also shows that dust lane running through it now that picture looks remarkably like uh, photographs images we can take of other galaxies at very large distances from ours which are also disk galaxies but seen edge on other galaxies are viewed at random orientations to us so we can see them edge on or we can see them face on if we see them face on we might be lucky to see beautiful spiral arm patterns um, if we see them edge on, then what we see is this thin strip with the dust lane running along the middle. And so there's examples of edge on galaxies that look very like our own, our own galaxy filling the whole sky because we are inside it. So that's a very good clue, I would say, that we live inside, uh, inside a disk galaxy. Now, if we go back, um, historically, of course, um, go back to the time of Copernicus, you know, uh, when it was first realized that, um, the sun and the earth didn't lie at the center of the universe as, as it was, previously thought you know from that time in the sort of 1500s 1600s if we sort of like move forward to the point of sort of saying okay well we now know that the sun isn't at the center of the universe but where is the sun located um, relative to other things in the universe well there was a big debate going on about whether our milky way galaxy was all there was whether the universe was just consists consisted effectively of our galaxy um, and things like the Andromeda galaxy, which, you know, you can see with the unaided eye uh, as a fuzzy patch and with it through a telescope, you start to see that it's basically one of these disks seen inclined at a bit of an angle to the line of sight. So it looks sort of roughly elliptical. You can even see some spiral structure in these galaxies and on others like um, the Whirlpool galaxy, for example. The debate was whether those spiral nebulae, as they were called, were actually, you know, fuzzy nebulous objects within our own galaxy, inside our own galaxy, or whether they were galaxies in their own right, well outside the Milky Way. And there was a famous um, so-called great debate in 1920 between two um, astronomers called um, Shapley and Curtis. And the, this debate was all about the distances to these to these so-called spiral spiral nebulae. Um, now. Uh, that whole debate was sort of had been thrown into confusion actually by uh, by the observation of an explosion of a nova in Andromeda, so in this in this Andromeda galaxy um, in 1885, which was given the name S and S the letter S as a variable star and for the uh, constellation of Andromeda. Uh, and what was done was was to use sort of standard candle estimates, so to look at the brightness of this this nova. Um, and therefore to estimate its distance. So if it would, if it appeared fainter, it would therefore be farther away. And the sort of calibration they had for those techniques at the time put the distance to, um, the Andromeda Nebula, the Andromeda Galaxy as we, as we know it now, um, well within the Milky Way. So it looked like these spiral nebulae were indeed inside the Milky Way. So the scale of the universe was, was completely wrong here. That whole process, uh, didn't get sorted out for a few years, actually. That was the late 1800s. When you get into the 1910s, there was quite a lot of progress made because, first of all, Henrietta Leavitt um, worked on 
um, looking at variable stars in the large and small Magellanic clouds. And she, re- she, she was the first to notice that so-called Cepheid variables had varied in brightness periodically. And she realized there was a relationship between um, the period and the intrinsic luminosity, the intrinsic brightness of the stars. We call it a period luminosity relation. So this was, this was really uh, a major step forward because it meant that you could, you could monitor one of these variable stars. You could measure the period of its variations in brightness and you could, having measured the period, you could therefore go um, to your calibration and you could say, okay, well, that tells me how intrinsically bright it is. And therefore, by looking at how apparently bright it is, I can tell how far away it is. You know, the fainter it would appear, um, the farther away it would be. So it was a, a sort of independent distance estimator. So one of the astronomers involved in the in the great debate was um, Harlow Shapley. Um, and he made a, a survey of globular clusters of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. So these are these beautiful, almost spherical distributions of maybe something like a million stars. Um, and he used various techniques, including the, the Cepheid variable technique, to estimate the distances. Uh, and when he did that, he could actually look around on the sky at about 70 or so of these globular clusters, and he could sort of get the uh, the distance away from us and the direction in which they were away from us and therefore make a sort of 3D model of the distribution of globular clusters. And what he found was they weren't equally distributed about the sun. They all lay off in a general direction towards roughly the constellation of uh, Sagittarius uh, and they lay sort of above and below the plane of the Milky Way that was the you know the bright band of stars that runs across the sky and they appeared to roughly distribute themselves um, about a point which at the time when he did these calculations and published his papers back in 1918 he obtained a distance to the point about which these clusters were symmetrically distributed of 13 kiloparsecs, about 13,000 parsecs. So remember, a parsec's about uh, three light years. So he was the first, actually, really, to to definitively show um, that the sun was not, um, say, at the centre of the Milky Way, for example. So, you know, we'd moved on from the original thoughts that the sun was was at the... uh, was at the centre of everything, and now we, we were able to actually show that the, the Milky Way was this sort of disc-like thing, and the sun was, as we say, something like roughly two-thirds of the way out from the middle. So those sort of early optical observations of, say, globular clusters and other star clusters and other star-forming regions started to give us a pretty good idea of the structure of our galaxy. But there was another breakthrough that was made that led us to sort of take another huge step forward in understanding our Milky Way and, indeed, other galaxies, um, and it really came about as a result of the development of radio astronomy in the 1930s. So when Karl Jansky first um, detected radio waves coming from outer space, um, he didn't really do much with that discovery as, in terms of astronomy. Um, Grote Reber um, followed on later in the 1930s to actually start to do some astronomy and he built a radio telescope in his back garden and he mapped the mapped the whole of the sky or a large part of the sky in radio waves and showed this sort of radio emission came from a came roughly from the same region as the as the as the Milky Way and he published those results in um, in the astrophysical journal now a few years after those results were published that paper eventually made its way into occupied Holland during during World War II and to the Leiden Observatory, which at the time the director was a, a gentleman called Jan Oort, uh, who you, you may know from uh, the Oort cloud of comets. 
And what Oort realized was reading this paper, obviously this was an incredible thing. It was the birth of invisible astronomy. It's the first time that we'd ever seen the universe at wavelengths other than the wavelengths of visible light. And what was one of the interesting things about the radio waves was that they actually passed through the dust clouds. So where we talked about these dust clouds between the stars, which, you know, when we look at our own Milky Way, we see threaded through the disk of through the sort of band of the Milky Way light from stars is this sort of dark regions which is blocking our view with the dust clouds blocking our view of more distant stars in the radio we'd be able to see through those dust clouds and so we'd be able to get a much better picture of the structure of the Milky Way and and, and peer indeed right down towards the centre of the galaxy itself obviously Oort was excited about this and he also realised that if it was possible to find what's called a spectral line at radio wavelengths and um, it, we would be able to make even uh, greater discoveries. Now, a spectral line is basically something where the light comes out at a very particular wavelength, a very specific wavelength. So famous examples in the visible um, regime, probably the most famous spectral line is called H-alpha. Um, so you're probably aware of H-alpha filters, um, which are used to look at the look at the light from the sun h alpha is a is a a line that results from hydrogen atoms where the, an electron in the hydrogen atom changes energy levels uh, and either absorbs or emits a photon of a, a particular wavelength about 656 nanometers in the red part of the the visible spectrum now what's what what was realizing was interesting here was what you can do with a spectral line is you can measure the wavelength at which you see it and you can compare that wavelength to the wavelength at which it should appear based on your knowledge of atomic physics. So what happens is that if the source of that radiation is either moving towards you or moving away from you, then you get a shift in the wavelength of the light that you see. So you get a red shift, it's shifted to longer wavelengths as the light is stretched effectively by the, by the source moving away from you, or it's um, shifted to shorter wavelengths um, if the object is moving towards you, a so-called blue shift. So it's actually possible to observe sources with spectral lines and determine how fast they're moving towards or away from you, which is quite an amazing thing to be able to do. And here, he realised, if there was a spectral line in the radio that we could predict its wavelength or frequency um, and then make observations of it, we'd be able to get the motions towards or away from us right the way across the galaxy because of the uh, the potential for these radio waves to travel through the dust clouds. So away went one of the uh, staff at the observatory, Hendrik van der Hulst, came back a little while later with his calculations saying he believed he'd worked out that there was a, a particular transition um, in the hydrogen atom um, relating to uh, effectively a quantum mechanical state of the, the the proton and the electron in the atom where the spins were either aligned or pointed in the opposite direction and there was a difference in energy between these two states which if the atom flipped between the two would lead to the so-called ha- famous hydrogen line, the 21 centimetre line, producing emission at radio wavelengths of about 21 centimetres. That line was indeed detected just a few years later, the early 1950s, by a group working in the USA. Um, and it's since been used to make probably the best estimates we have of um, the structure of the Milky Way because we're able to actually plot out the clouds of hydrogen gas that lie in the disk of the galaxy and trace out for example, the spiral arm structure of the Milky Way. So 
Well, you know, we're not, I would say we're fairly confident about the, certainly the gross features of the, of the structure of the Milky Way now, uh, and its spiral arm structure. Hydrogen line work in the radio has done, made great progress there for us. Um, some of the most recent work, um, again, working at long wavelengths, that means you're not as affected by the, by absorption by dust. There's a great, uh, Spitzer, um, there's a nice, image that's been made of this the spiral arm structure that's come from Spitzer observations quite recently uh, which is worth looking at okay um and i think i'll just uh, i'll just finish with uh, just a discussion of something that came up uh, a project i did recently um for the bbc was a a little video clip which was just meant to explain some sim- some simple scientific concepts and they asked me would i would i help them with a little video about the light year uh, and in in our production of that, um, there was a question which was from the producer there, which said, uh, so how far away is the middle of the galaxy? How far away is the centre of the Milky Way? And I said, oh, dear, you shouldn't ask questions like that to a scientist. Don't, <laughs> you know, don't expect a simple answer. Sounds like a simple question. Of course, we've talked about, you know, the early observations done by Shapley and other globular clusters that got gave an estimate. Probably the best uh, estimate we have of the distance of uh, the sun from the from the Milky Way center have been obtained recently by looking at um, the motions of stars around what we believe to be a black hole at the center of our galaxy. There's a an object, it's a radio source, again using radio observations that see right through to the center, called Sagittarius A star. Sagittarius is the constellation which we is at the center of the Milky Way. Sagittarius A. Um, is the brightest radio source in there, and Sagittarius A star, we believe, marks the point where this central black hole sits. And it's possible, and it's been done for, for a number of years now, um, to look at the motions of stars using various techniques. Um, perhaps the most famous recent examples have been using the uh, the NTT and the VLT telescopes and the Keck telescope, um, looking at sort of... Um, uh, near infrared light, uh, measuring the positions of these stars and following their orbits over many years. So basically they've been tracking stars, uh, since about 1992 in the case of the, uh, uh, the, the NTT and VLT observations since 1995 in, in the case of the Keck telescope observations. And what you're able to do is actually follow those stars as they orbit the Milky Way. You can f- plot their motions. Um, and you can actually measure the radial velocity, so that's the speed at which the stars are moving along the line of sight using this Doppler shift technique that we talked about earlier, the red shifts and blue shifts. And you're actually able, therefore, to to get a distance to these uh, stars and to the point at which they uh, which they orbit. And the best distance that comes out of that currently is that the distance to the central black hole um, is about 8.3 kiloparsecs which is about 27,000 light years. Um, and the error on that is something like a thousand light years. It's about, so it's about 27,000 plus or minus a thousand light years. There are other techniques. Um, there's a very nice piece of work being done with, um, the VLBA, the Very Long Baseline Array, which is the American array of radio telescopes spread over very large distances. So you get very high angular resolution. And there, uh, there's a group that's actually looked at so-called water mazes in a star-forming region, so a region of space where there's a lot of molecules and dust and gas that's collapsing to form stars, um, and water molecules are producing this um, maser emission, very bright spots 
of radio light, microwave radio light. Maser stands is, is like a laser, but the M is for microwaves. And those, they can measure the positions of those spots very accurately. And over the course of a year, as the Earth moves around the sun, you can measure their apparent position change relative to a, a very distant uh, radio source outside of our galaxy, an extragalactic radio source. And we're able to measure the parallaxes, which is a direct geometric measure of distance. And again, that distance comes out with about the same, roughly, about 8 kiloparsecs, something like that. And in fact, that star forming region is known to be uh, a little bit closer than the, the Sagittarius A star uh, black hole region. So all these things are coming down on a distance to the uh, to the centre of the Milky Way of about something like 27,000 uh, light years. And probably the last thing to say on this uh, is uh, we should look forward to a, a space mission um, that's going to do, again, it's going to revolutionise this whole field, I'm sure, uh, called Gaia. And Gaia is a European Space Agency mission which is due to be launched in 2012. And Gaia's actually going to do a census of 1,000 million stars. In other words, a billion stars in our galaxy. And those stars are going to be monitored over a five-year period, observed many times over that period, measuring the positions and the brightness changes, um, and therefore because you can measure the positions, you can get the distances from the parallax. And so we're going to get this incredible um, three-dimensional model of our galaxy. Um, the, the specification um, that's quoted for, for Gaia is that um, the, the sort of positional accuracy to which um, these, uh, these stars will be measured is comparable to measuring the diameter of a human hair at a distance of a thousand kilometers. So, you know, this is, this is incredible. And it'll provide distances accurate to about 20% at the distance of the galactic center. Um, which is actually, you know, which is good. Although, you know, actually the orbits of stars about the central black hole are, are more accurate than that for the distance to the central black hole. But in terms of measuring the distances to, 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 to individual stars, a, a billion stars, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a wonderful project, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the data as that starts to starts to come out in the next five years or so. Okay, if you've got any um, uh, other questions, I've concentrated on Joe's question because there was a lot of things to talk about uh, uh, this month there. But if you have any other questions, then uh, please uh, send them in via the feedback form on the website, the usual route, and I'll speak to you again next month. Thanks for that, Tim. And now on to the part of the show where we get your listener feedback. And it's been a quiet few weeks. It might be something to do with the fact that Dave and I forgot to say how you can get in touch with us in the last show. But we've had an email from Les Gornall who says it's so refreshing to hear scientists reporting and not science reporters. So thanks for that, Les. And uh, Giselle Font is listening to the Jogcast in Chile, where she's an undergraduate student of astronomy at the University of Chile, saying she really appreciates our work or your work. And if Adam pronounced your name wrong, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, I'm over on the forum, there's been nothing. Um, but on Facebook, Robert City thinks that the Jogcast is great, which is always good to hear. And on Twitter, again, not really much. There were a few people at AstroFest who were trying to find Stuart while he was there, but I think Stuart might have been hiding. He's pretty elusive he at is. times. For someone who always says on Twitter where they are, he's very hard to find. And if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. We're on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. We're on Facebook at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. 
So that brings us to the end of the show. I'm quite impressed that Adam and I have managed not to destroy anything or <laughs> ramble on too much about Nintendo and metal music and everything. So all that's left to say is thank you to Marek Kula and Jim Wilde for the interviews and the editors for this show were Stuart and Adam. So until next time, jod on. Bye. Thank you.